This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Sarah Thal, professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Thal is the author of Rearranging the Landscape of the Gods, the Politics of a Pilgrimage Site in Japan, 1573 to 1912, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2005. Dr. Thal, thank you for talking to me today. Thank you for inviting me. Your first book was about pilgrimage sites in late Tokugawa and early Meiji Japan. But I understand now you're working on samurai ethics and the Hagakure. Could you tell us a, a bit about samurai ethics? Okay. Well, actually, my project has changed a bit beyond Hagakure. I got into it because, like most people who teach pre-modern Japan, I teach a course on samurai. And I always had <laughs> trouble trying to explain to students what was going on with Hagakure, especially from a historical viewpoint instead of a psychological or literary perspective. So I was trying to historicize Hagakure, trying to understand what was going on in Saga Domain, trying to understand how Hagakure became so popular in the 20th century. And as happened with my first book, I kept working backward in time and realizing, you know, when did Bushido become popular? And so I started working on the origins of modern Bushido in the 1890s, at which point Oleg Benish's book about inventing the way of the samurai came out. And I thought, oh, no, I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been scooped everything I wanted to do. And then I realized that actually, you know, Oleg's book is this wonderful intellectual history of the modern concept of Bushido across many decades, whereas as I had been studying the origins of Bushido in the 1890s, I became absolutely fascinated by the importance of the decade of the 1890s itself to the development of this idea. And so now what I'm working on is actually, in many ways, a history of the 1890s through the lens of this developing concept of Bushido. And this is, so it's about this crucial decade, which is the first decade of electoral constitutional politics. And I'm using Bushido in many ways to understand the development of these key conservative talking points. So that's the current project is the origins of Bushido in 1890s Japan. Can you elaborate on, on what is happening in the 1890s? You mentioned that this is the first decade of electoral politics. We also often hear about this kind of mid-Meiji resurgence in conservatism in Japan. Well, from the perspective of Bushido, we have this the first meeting of the National Diet in 1890 and this controversy over the budget and how much say does the diet have does the diet have as much say as was implied by the Meiji oligarchs with the writing of the constitution? So there's a bunch of political strife. Those early national elections were filled with violence. So there's a bunch of upheaval and worries among people. Then you have the Meiji civil code, which the, the oligarchs had pushed through the Genroin right before the opening of the diet and the dissolution of the Genroin. And there were several sections which were based on French civil law and gave relative equality to women in terms of inheritance, marriage, and divorce, and essentially set up a new structure that was more focused on a nuclear family than the larger 
households that had been prevalent, certainly among the samurai before then. And so many of the new leaders, and as well as, of course, lawyers were upset. There was, there was a huge debate right after the first diet session about this civil code. And in the second diet session, there was a successful push to postpone its implementation. So as part of this debate, there was a very famous article written by Hozumi Yatsuka, who was the brother of the constitutional lawyer Hozumi Nobushige. And Hozumi Yatsuka wrote an article about, you know, if the civil code is actually promulgated or actually enforced, this will be the end of loyalty and filial piety in our nation. This will be the end of morality. And this article and two other articles which he wrote, which were almost exactly the same, but under different titles and different publications, helped form a kind of rhetoric about morality versus the law. And so I'd say in, in some ways it was part of this whole reaction, this, this worry about, you know, what are these horrible changes that are going to be taking place? We're not only having electoral politics for the first time, but we're having a law that will change our very social structure and change the position of men in their own households and the position of elite men in politics. So there was a threat that many elite men felt to their positions, both as individuals and as political beings. You can see how I got to this out of Bushido. I mean, because actually looking at these early Bushido texts, they're citing, they're, there was all this rhetoric about law is bad, morality is good. And I was like, where did that come from? You know, and then realizing, oh, it came from Hosumi Yatsuka's article. It's almost, you know, verbatim. So similar kind of thing. I was reading these early Bushido texts, you know, before Nitobe Yunazo, before, you know, you know Itatsujiro. In the, all of these early texts, we also see the presence of Western thought. And so we see in Hosumi Yatsuka's essay, he keeps citing Fustel de Coulange and a bunch of other European historians who are talking about the decline of European society. And a lot of people started citing from the mid-1890s on the idea of Bushido being the equivalent of Western chivalry. It was the equivalent of Western chivalry except for the position of women. So you got Hosokawa Junjiro who first set this out. But he was portraying Western chivalry in such a strange way that was all about, you know, women are training these pages and knights and women are coddling them and these Western knights are, they're, they're essentially spoiled by women and they pay too much attention to women and they treat women very differently than we do. And that's the main difference. And essentially, you know, this sort of builds on and on about how we as Japanese, we treat women very differently. Bushido is either, Bushido is chivalry because it's about trustworthiness or discipline or whatever, or, and then Bushido is not chivalry because we do not worship women, especially with, you know, Tetsuchiro by 1900. That's what people are really emphasizing. We do, we do not worship women. We do not revere women. And I thought, where, where in the world is this coming from? And I traced it back and it actually found the source of why they were talking about chivalry with such an emphasis on the role of women and the ladies of the domains. And it's because of the most popular textbook on world history in the United States, Canada, and Japan in the 1880s. And that was William Swinton's Outlines of the History of the World. 
He was apparently Walt Whitman's Latin tutor. And his message was all about how chivalry was a wonderful thing because it tamed the barbarian warrior in Europe and it helped raise women to their proper place as the partners and helpers of men or something like that. I can't remember the exact words. And it's fascinating because if you look at the National Diet Library website, you can find all of these Japanese cribs to William Swinton's Outlines of the History of the World and little translation notes multiple translations into Japanese. And you could tell people were having a hard time trying to deal with this idea. (laughs) And it became part of this whole development of this idea of Bushido. So that's what's going on in the 1890s from the Bushido perspective, as you see this engagement with Western ways of writing history. We know that Margaret Mill has written that wonderful book. We've got a good sense of what people are doing in terms of world history, but it's not just a matter for professional historians to think about how to write history. It makes its way into the educated conversations in ways that we haven't paid much attention to. And, you know, when we think of the Meiji period and people getting excited about Western theories, we often talk about popular rights, Rousseau or Samuel Smiles or whatever, But if we think about it, the emphasis on the emperor in the Meiji period really brings a certain segment of the Japanese educated classes into a more sympathetic relationship with Western thinkers and writers who are supporting their own monarchs. And so we talk about, oh, the 1880s, the 1890s, these were a backlash against the West. Now that's sort of a straw man argument. It's much more how I was taught about it in the 1980s. But really, I think it still bears mentioning that this kind of shift to a conservative rhetoric was still very, very much influenced by the West, by conservative writers in Europe and the United States. Now, Swinton was not one of them. Swinton was, you know, in some ways, sort of his own feminist in the United States. But the works, a sort of feminist history for the time, could also cause a backlash that people could find support for among other Western thinkers. So by the 1890s, people were not thinking of, oh, Western thought is one big monolithic thing. But you could tell in their writing that by the 1890s, certainly, people are very aware of the tensions within Western thought and can pick and choose and use what they want for their own purposes. think of Bushido then as setting up an ethics that is meant to unify all of the people. I mean, because one of the things that, again, is happening in the 1880s and and 90s, as you mentioned, was the freedom and popular rights movement, this time that Japanese society seems to be coming apart at the seams almost. And now you have the Meiji government trying to put it back together. Is the official support of Bushido a way to do that? I mean, another one of the things that gets promulgated in 1890 is the imperial rescript on education. Yes. Maybe we can think of, of this conservative resurgence in the 1890s as not necessarily antagonism to the West, but maybe a way for the Meiji state to try to bring everybody back together. Mm-hmm. And the imperial rescript on education gets promulgated, bringing the Shinto teachings back into the school, emphasizing really strongly loyalty and filial piety. And then it sounds like Bushido is kind of doing the same thing, trying to reinstate loyalty and filial piety into the home. So is this kind of a popular ethics that the Meiji state is promoting to unify the people 
Well, let's let's break that down a bit. I try not to talk about the Meiji state as a whole. And think about actually the people who are involved in this are very much the same people who are involved in the Meiji Rescript and Education. And they're trying to educate and set the tenor of ideas at this time. So actually, one thing that became very clear to me, which I hadn't really registered beforehand, is the importance of the Academy of Sciences. In many ways, the Academy of Sciences was the successor to the Meiroksha, but it was sponsored by the Ministry of Education, and all of its members were invited to join by the Ministry of Education, and they were paid salaries from the Ministry of Education. So this was something that upset Fukuzawa Yukichi very much. He joined at first, actually was one of the first leaders of this um, Gakushikain, but he quickly criticized and said, look, this is, this is all for the establishment. This isn't independent anymore. And he quit very quickly, really condemning everybody for buying into the establishment line by being part of this academy. Now, the academy, they sort of continued in many ways what the Meiroksha had done, introducing a bunch of Western thinkers, translating things, debating Western thought. You know, this is now the late 1880s the 1890s, and they're introducing more and more conservative thought because they are charged with helping the Monbusho establish rule and and support the government. And so this is part of what they did. And several of these early writers for the this idea of Bushido that, that I'm focusing on, there were there were others. They're in many ways they're reacting against others at the same time, but members of the Gakushikain wrote some of the most influential early pieces on Bushido. And so they're part of the same project to, as you say, try to unite all Japanese in support of the imperial government. So as opposed to the very first person that we know of who wrote about Bushido as a kind of ethic and morality that non-samurai could partake in, that was Ozaki Yukio, one of the leaders of the political opposition in the Diet. The first reaction against him, those early statements of Bushido were written by people affiliated with the Gakushikaiin, like Shigeno Yasusawa, the historian. So I would say that it's not, that it's more that they formed Bushido alongside ideas about loyalty, filial piety, and the values in the imperial rescript and education. And I might go so far as to say, you know, Look, the imperial rescript on education, that was something that went straight into the schools. These conversations about the Meiji civil code were much more broadly disseminated, as far as I can tell, among the voting gentry. And so maybe it was that debate about the Meiji civil code that really introduced a lot of the ideas that we attribute to the influence of the imperial rescript on education. And then these same people who are involved in that civil code debate on the more intellectual end as opposed to the legal end are developing this idea of Bushido at the same time. So that's why I'm very interested in the 1890s, because I see a real consolidation of conservative talking points about loyalty, filial piety, the importance of morality over law, the proper position of women, the authority of men, all that kind of circle of values, I think, becomes established in these debates and these ideas about Bushido. 
In the 1870s and 80s, one of the big conversations amongst the oligarchs like Ito Hirobumi, going around Europe, seeing you know all of the national religions uh-huh. in Europe, and, and there's even this kind of anecdote about I think it was Kaiser Wilhelm or is it Bismarck, where one of them tells Ito, "You got to have a national religion." Ah, yes, because mm-hmm. they see it's the national religion that really ideologically unites all of the people. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's that quick association to national religion, state Shinto. But as your research and others has shown, it, it's not really that clear cut. And in fact, the Meiji state kind of backs away from Shinto. Mm-hmm. Is Bushido the, re- the answer then? Is Bushido the new national religion for Japan that's going to ideologically unite all of the people? Well, for Inoue Tetsujiro, it certainly is. And he was extremely influential. I, was, I shouldn't say Bushido alone. He, for decades, from 1900 until his death in, what, 1943, he was promoting Bushido hugely, but also promoting the idea of a national morality. And so he, like many others, was against this idea of religion, in part because they were against Christianity. So they didn't want to associate Bushido with religion. And interestingly, you know, when I first was working on this early period of Bushido, I was trying to understand, I thought, well, Bushido and Shinto, you know, they both seem to be these conservative ideologies, these conservative thought systems. You know, what is the relationship of the people who espouse them to each other? And I've at least in in this early period, I found there is a tension. One of the earliest people who reacted against Osaki Yukio's early statement about Bushido being the equivalent of European gentlemanship was a Kokugaku scholar named Matsumoto Aiju. So very early on, he highlights the idea in relationship to Bushido that Japan has a long tradition of things martial going all the way back to Amaterasu and the creation of the islands by Izanagi and Izanami with these spears. So invoking martial values as being the essence of Japanese-ness from the earliest myths. But is that really, is that religion? Is it not religion? I mean, then we go back to the whole problem of what is religion and what is religion in the Meiji period and is Shinto a religion? And as I touched on in my first book, that's a very thorny question. And people, at least people especially associated with the government, tended to insist that Shinto was not a religion. And they weren't going to talk about Bushido as a religion either. We think of, like you were saying, religion as this maybe a set of morals and a mm-hmm. set of ethics. And you have the, the state who's backing away from Shinto as a religion, certainly, but still still understanding that you need to have some kind of fundamental ethics uh-huh. dictating social intercourse. Yes. Is, is that what Bushido becomes then? Yes. For some people, that's what Bushido becomes. I mean, when any of us writes about or promotes a particular interpretation of some kind of ethical teaching, you know, if I, if I wrote an essay about freedom or liberty right now. I would, in writing it, I would interpret freedom to mean what I want it to mean. And the way I did that would be informed very much by current events and what I'm worried about, right? What kinds of threats I see to my value of freedom. And that's exactly what was going on when anybody wrote about Bushido. They're like, oh, you know, people have been talking about Bushido lately. I mean, a lot of these early essays, they start off, well, ah, Iwayuru Bushido, this, you know, there's this thing people have been calling, talking about lately called Bushido. 
And, you know, they implicitly, they don't usually say how the other person interpreted it, but, you know, they thought of it as the ethics of trustworthiness in trade. No, 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 no. Right now in the aftermath of the all the violence about the elections, I've, I'm most worried about violence. And, you know, these Soshi running around beating people up and dragging them to the, you know, either dragging them to the polls or keeping them away from the polls, right? So I'm going to emphasize that proper, the proper way of a, of a samurai, the proper way of a manly man is not to be violent, but to be self-disciplined. Therefore, let me write this, all this stuff about Bushido. And look, Bushido is all about self-discipline. It's all about loyalty to the emperor. It's not about trade. It's not about partisan politics. And surely that's how people wrote about various different things from different perspectives. Other people wrote about Bushido in terms of being about compassion for those below them. While others said, no, Bushido is about loyalty to those above you. You know, So Bushido could become a grounds for moral debates and political debates the same way Shinto could, the same way, you know, any value that anybody wants to talk about could become a term that people used for their own purposes at that particular time. And what I would suggest is that the purposes for which those terms were used at that particular time indelibly shaped the way that these terms were then interpreted later. And that's why I think looking at the 1890s is such a key strategy for understanding how did we come to understand Bushido the way we understand it now. I say it came from the 1890s, some of it came from the 1930s, some of it later, and it depends whether you're Japanese or American and who's reading what. Nitobe Inazo certainly talked about Bushido as being the equivalent or counterpart of European religion in terms of providing morality. But he was writing for Americans. He was writing for English readers and trying to use the language and concepts that they understood. But within Japan, where the idea of religion had a very different value, I would say that was not really part of the conversation, certainly early on. We've been talking about what's going on in the 1890s, and of course, one of the biggest things that happens in the 1890s is arguably the, the start of Japanese imperialism. I mean, we have in the first diet session, Yamagata Aritomo goes out and gives this very famous speech, laying out this idea of a line of sovereignty and a line of interest, which of course includes Korea, and kind of laying out this platform for Japanese expansion. And then we get the Sino-Japanese War in 1894. And so at the same time, there's this kind of formulation of Bushido as morals and ethics. But what about the Bushi part of Bushido, (laughs) the kind of warrior aspect? Is, Is there a kind of overlap with this increasing imperialism? It's been very interesting because I've been trying to figure that out. And these early texts, the ones 1894, 1895, 1896, up around 1899, there's not much overt mention of the Sino-Japanese War. However, this seems to be the time in which there's a real rise in interest in martial arts. And so there's more talk about Bushido in martial arts circles. As far as I can tell, this rise of interest in martial arts seems to be 
merging with this focus on male authority and men not men not revering women, because I see more of that rhetoric in some of these martial arts publications, although I don't see as much of it as I thought I would. How about emergence of nationalism? Because this also seems to be the time that you have the emergence of outward displays of nationalism, particularly after the Sino-Japanese War. I mean, is there any kind of nationalist sentiment in these writings about Bushido? Absolutely. And what's fascinating to me is that in the late 1890s, up until, and including Inoue Tetsujiro's very influential first writing or so on, or first his first lecture on Bushido, um, it is linked to the idea that we do not worship women. What is uniquely Japanese about Bushi and Bushido is their attitude toward women. And this is ab- has absolutely flabbergasted me. I'm just like, what? <laughs> I, I mean, I've been, I was one of those people who, I wasn't trained in gender studies. I, you know, I thought I'm, I'm working on religion. I have plenty of other stuff I need to be focusing on. So I didn't explicitly train myself in gender studies. And so I'm one of these people who was, I didn't come into it looking for this kind of thing. And then it just hit me over the head. I was like, oh, well, if even I recognize that this whole issue about women is key here, it must really have been an important part of this. But the, the focus on, you know, what differentiates Bushido from European chivalry? What makes us different from the Europeans? It's our treatment of women. <laughs> I was astonished. <laughs> Negative treatment of women. Right? Exactly. Exactly. We keep, them, we keep them in their place. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.